Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to our Redemption Songs, Megillat Esther. Before I begin, I would like to thankfully acknowledge today's special sponsors, our dear show members, Laura and Fred Shainbaum. Today's class is being sponsored, Le'ilu Nishmas, Laura's sister, Esther Yocheved, Bas Yechiel, Avraham, Allah, Hasholim, Esther Polad, Jonathan Polad's Eishas Chayil. Laura asked me to share with you that Esther was an untiring advocate for her dear husband, Jonathan. This is widely known. And she's quoting Rabbi Pesach Lerner, the chairman of Eretz HaKodesh at the World Zionist Federation. The truth was, that she was a very loving, loyal, and dedicated wife. And her extreme love and loyalty were also a precious gift that Laura and her family were blessed to have received. May Esther's holy neshama have an aliyah. And may the Torah that we study together from Megillah's Esther bring joy to the neshama of Esther Yecheved on high. So with no further ado, Today we are going to talk about the festival of Purim being formally enacted. Let's step back for a second. We've done quite a bit of learning about Megillah Sester. We didn't just read the Megillah. We actually studied it. And the more you study this remarkable scroll, the more you discover how miraculous indeed the story really was. The Jewish people slated for genocide, annihilation, on one day. That's all it would take. Not several years. In one day, world Jewry was to have been wiped out. And stunningly, everything turned inside out. Instead of a day of sadness and grief, mourning, death and destruction, this became a day of incredible joy, celebration, happiness. Across the Persian Empire, a vast area in which millions of Jews lived, it was understood that the string of stunning events was not an accident. It became clear to people that they had seen the hand of Hashem and that the divine deliverance they experienced beckoned to them, it called to them for a joyous expression of thanksgiving. We talked about this in previous episodes. One of the greatest men in Jewish history is King Chizkiyahu. And his one major failing, but it was a major failing, 
is he never publicly acknowledged and thanked Hashem for the miraculous deliverance that he experienced. Surely the Jewish people had learned the lesson. And they erupted in what could perhaps be described as a visceral, heartfelt, absolutely soulful expression of joyous thanksgiving. All right. That was, that was then. But how did this evolve into or become a part of the very fabric of Judaism? How was this embedded into the DNA of Torah eternity? How is it that Purim became and will forever be the most joyous day on the Jewish calendar? A simcha, a joy that literally knows no bounds in the words of our sages, ad yoda, to the point that it transcends rhyme, reason, and any kind of apprehension altogether. Well, this is at least an opening into that fantastic story. How did it happen? So let me begin today by first sharing with you the words of the Talmud Yerushalmi. Because if, if it's a, a question that you have, you say, so how did this become so important? How did it take its place in the Hall of Fame of Judaism? Right along with the pantheon of all of the other important mitzvahs, holidays, and observances that punctuate our Jewish life. Well, if that question isn't big enough, Listen to this. The Talmud Yerushalmi, this is in the first chapter, what's called Halacha Hay, in the print that most of us use today. It's on Dav Zayin Omed Aleph on page 7a. The Gemara tells us that there was two teachings, but like sister teachings, compatible teachings, similar teachings, that had been delivered by Two sages who were very close. Rav Yochanan, the senior sage of the Talmud Yerushalmi, and his brother-in-law, Reish Lakish, or Rabbi Shimon bin Lakish. And there's a long story behind Reish Lakish, who he was, and more importantly, how he became who he was. But at any rate, that's not the focus of today's class. So the Gemara says... Two teachings, two teachings from Rabbi Yechanan and Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. Rabbi Yechanan says, Hanavim v'hachtuvim, all of the words of the prophets and the later scriptural writings, atidin libatel, they will fade into oblivion. Literally, they will be nullified. However, the chameshesh sipure, the Torah, the five books of what's called in English, the Pentateuch, five books of Moses, Einam Atidin Libatel. They will never be eclipsed. They will never be nullified. My timer. How can you be so sure? Well, in Parshas Vaschanan, in Deuteronomy 5, it says that this was a kol godol, that the voice that was heard at Sinai, which is embodiment of the first five books of Torah, was a great voice, but Vala Yosef. It was unending. It also means that such revelation 
would never appear or unfold for us again. And yet, the Gemara here emphasizes its eternity, lo yosaf, even in the glorious messianic future. Rabbi Shimon ben Lakashamar, Rabbi Shimon adds to the words of his elder, esteemed colleague and brother-in-law, and he says, you must know that it is not only the books of Torah, but in fact, it is also Megillat Esther, the scroll we're studying together right now. How do we know this? He says, well, you must know that it's Megillah Esther and it's also Halachot, the rules and binding laws of Judaism. For whilst Judaism is a system that is designed by God to nurture, facilitate, and develop a meaningful and profound relationship for us with God, it has its rules, rules of engagement. There's a specific methodology to achieving and developing this relationship. No, it isn't just about love. It's also about respect. And respect, or awe, means that we are prepared to submit to the will of Hashem and do things on God's terms, not ours. It isn't only about our desire or yearning to be close to God. It isn't merely about us feeling a sense of love for the Creator. It's perhaps more importantly about us being prepared to submit ourselves to the will, to the desire of our Creator. Just as, for example, if there's a person you love, perhaps it's a spouse or a child, you could smother them with your love and they might not appreciate it. You can self-express all over them and that might not bring you any closer to them. But if you're prepared to listen and to know what it is that they seek, that they want, that they need, now you're on the road to a relationship. When we received the Torah, we bowed our heads in submission. We said, Nase Venishma. We are prepared to do precisely that which Almighty God ordains for us. But it won't merely be an outward expression of dedication or devotion. We want to learn. We want to be able to self-identify with the ideas and ideals of Yiddishkeit. So we ask Hashem that we not only have the privilege, the opportunity to do what He wants, but also to know and understand it. The journey begins, though, with acceptance. Submission to His will and a readiness to do as Hashem asks. The Gemara tells us that's never going to change. We're always going to be observing our Judaism, our Yiddishkeit. The halachot are here to stay. And Nebuchadnezzar bin Lakesh adds, that comes along with Megillah Esther. And we know this because just as it says, with regard to the rules and laws of Torah, a great voice that was unending, it says with regard to Megillah Esther, 
And this is found in the very chapter that we're studying, several verses away from what we're up to. But there it is written, Vezichrom la Yosef Mizarom. Its remembrance shall never cease from their progeny, from their seed. And so, whilst this speaks about the actual Megillah, the Korban Ha'edah, arguably the single most important commentary on the Jerusalem Talmud says, Af Megillat Esther means Kiyom Kriyata. It doesn't just mean that the book will be on the shelf and read or studied on occasion. It means it'll actually be read publicly, existentially, alluding to the Purim observances. Wow. So Purim not only became a part of Yiddishkeit or Judaism for the journey that we might call exilic, but ultimately the story and observance of Purim is here forever. It's part of eternity. How did that happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. And the balance of today's class is going to be addressing, perhaps only from an elemental level, but just the study of the actual verses that speak to us about the enactment of Purim and the establishment of its mitzvah observances. Megillah Tester, Pedic We are now studying the ninth chapter of this incredible scroll. We're up to verse 20. I just want to remind everybody who's watching on Facebook that if you would like to ask questions, you need to kind of shift over to YouTube. And there's a live chat here, and I can see different people who are joining in from different places. And if you ask a question, I will, with Hashem's help, do my very best to respond to you that way. Okay. And one final word before we actually begin the study. If you haven't yet, and most of the views on YouTube are from unsubscribed people. That's what my stats are telling me. So if you haven't yet, if you're one of those, please, can you take a moment to subscribe and enable notifications while you're at it? There's no charge. And in this way, whenever we come together to teach Torah, you can be aware of it. And you can participate and share. It's youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Subscribe and enable notifications too. Thank you. All right. Let's roll our sleeves up. Let's get right into it. I hope you have a Megillah in front of you. If you don't, you can find one online. Chapter 9, verse 10. Vayichtov. We begin with an inscription. Mordechai pens. Or, as is translated in most good English versions, Mordechai recorded. Although the word ketiva technically means to write, it's more than just Mordechai writing for himself. This was the creation of a permanent record. There were no word process, so obviously he had to write. But it was more than just an inscription. He didn't write this on a monument. He didn't inscribe this on a wall. He penned this and created a record. What? Et hadvarim ha'ela. These very words. Now Rashi is quick to comment. Vayichtov Mordechai. And Mordechai wrote, penned, or recorded. Says Rashi, he hamegillah hazot. We're speaking about the very Megillah who you and I are studying right now. Mordechai wrote this. Kemo the Megillah, as you and I read it. That's what he wrote. 
That's what Mordechai set out to record for posterity. The Ibn Ezra says, Vayichtov Mordechai, he says, Levado. This was not something that was worked on by a committee. <laughs> you know, there's a silly little joke about who created the camel? And the answer, a committee. That's why it has two humps. Okay, bad joke. The point, of course, is that Mordechai became a, a point of diffusion. He became a funnel. Hashem spills through him his, his nevuah, his, his uh, inspiration. These are, these are not a, a private man's writings. This is not history as his story. This is scripture. And the man, privileged and tasked with committing that to its scriptural syntax, the will of Hashem, was Mordechai. But what motivated him? What impelled him? What did he wish to achieve? What was he attempting to accomplish? Ibn Ezra says, Lekayin b'shona haba. Mordechai saw the celebrations. He understood their value. He knew they were mitzvah-oriented. He also knew that this needed to become part and parcel of Judaism forever. And so, in the future years, v'kocha kol hashonim, Simchas And so it is for all years, forever, annually, we celebrate these days of Purim. Now it's very interesting to note in the Megillah Sesodim, he says the following. He says this whole verse, verse 20, doesn't really seem to say anything to us. He wrote these words. And he sent books. Books are um, copies, really. To all of the Jews who lived throughout the enormous, sprawling empire of ancient Persia, presided over by King Achashverosh. Those who were close and those who were far. This is interesting, the idea of those who were close and far. I mean, isn't it a given or obvious? We've talked about the enormous nature of this, of this, uh, this gigantic empire, 127 promise, provinces. You know, there are 50 states. The United States is pretty big. 127 provinces. It's huge. Well, the Ma'am Lois maintains that Hakrovim v'horechokim doesn't mean the entirety of the kingdom. That's a given. Rather, he suggests that Hakrovim mean those under the tutelage of Achashverosh, as in part of the Persian Empire. Harachokim are those who are outside of the empire. So Mordechai really made sure to get the message out. Any Jew, anywhere where they might be, received a communication from the Rebbe of the day. And this is what it said. So the Megillah Sarim suggests that this entire verse is somewhat superfluous. 
He just had to say, hey, here's an edict. On the days of the 14th and 15th, you need to read the Megillah or make them Yemei Mishti Simcha. Instead, we get this whole circuitous string of verses. He sent out books to all the Jewish people. Those who are near and those who are far. So that they might fulfill. So that they will make or reenact the 14th to 15th. Like the days that was originally done. What is he getting at here? Why the seeming rather luxurious or unnecessary verbiage. So the Megillah Sarum says, This is what seems to be the broader message. What he meant to say is, They should not be like some ancient history. This shouldn't be something that once happened to somebody's great-great ancestor somewhere in the world, somehow still relevant or meaningful for me, but not really part of my life. No, that would be the wrong way to celebrate Purim. That's not what Mordechai was trying to do. He was not trying to create history. He was trying to create what we call dynamic live Judaism. This is not about a zecher ba'alma, says the Megillah Sassarim. It's not merely about a remembrance of something that once happened. Rak, rather, she'yir etzlem ki'ilu hayoyim nasahanes. So that we celebrate Purim, we should be celebrating something that could have happened yesterday. In other words, that Purim and its message is real and relevant vibrant, alive, part of who we are right now. This dovetails beautifully into the famous teaching of the Baal Shem Tov that I've shared so many times during the course of these lessons, the Baal Shem Tov's mystical interpretation of the Mishnah's technical ruling about how the Megillah must be read in order, not lemafreya, not out of order, or literally backwards. Because if you read the Megillah out of order or backwards, then, you didn't fulfill the mitzvah. The only way that the story of the miracle is able to be appreciated is if you read the Megillah in the order of how things unfolded, the way it, un- it, it occurred. But the Baal Shem Tov said there's more to the Mishnah than just the order in which the story must be read. The deeper message is, in order to fulfill your obligation, in order for you to actually be mikayim, to discharge your mandated commitment to Hashem, that's called Purim. What you need to do is read the Megillah, not lemafreya, not as something that once happened, but rather to read it in dynamic fashion. That's what the writing of this scroll was about. Mordechai was not recording events for posterity. He was actually embedding something into the DNA of Torah Judaism. It's like the field called epigenetics where you can actually modify the genetic code. Repetitive behavior eventually becomes a part of who we are.
when this behavior comes on the wings of prophecy and divine inspiration, it's injected right into the bloodstream of life elixing Torah Yiddishkeit. And that was the motivation. That was the ultimate goal, the purpose of Mordechai's recording the story and pinning the Megillah into posterity. It's interesting to note that Rabbi Avram Galiko, he says, Mordechai was concerned because the nature of time is such that it breeds by its very definition, forgetfulness. Things get old, tired, and forgotten. It's just a matter of fact. To try and keep something alive and dynamic for posterity is impossible. Unless it's plugged in to something higher. That is to say, the vicissitudes of time are such that the further away you get, the more it fades. You know, it really isn't different than the Doppler effect. The further away you are from the sound being emitted, the fainter the sound becomes. And eventually, you can't hear it anymore. Einstein used this in some of his original theses on the theory of relativity. The Doppler effect was a way of measuring the passage of time and the movement of space. But here's the point. Kol means that there is a continuous broadcast, that the voice of Torah never fades and that its message never gets old. There is only one way for something to remain eternally relevant. And that is if it's lifted to eternity by the wings of the Shekhinah. If it's a part of Almighty God. God is eternal, unchanging. God's Torah is eternal and unchanging. Anything that is part of Torah will be here forever. Anything that isn't will necessarily fade with the passage of time. It is physically impossible in the world in which we live, in the reality that we know. It is physically impossible for something to remain on for eternity unless it is directly linked unless it is rooted to Torah eternity. That's a matter of fact. You can't create eternal memories of anything, regardless of how egregious, outstanding, horrific, or amazing an event might be. Eventually, it will fade into the past. It's just the way things are. People worry about people forgetting the Holocaust. They forgot the Inquisition. Hardly anybody outside of Torah Jews remember the Chmel Mitzki massacres of Tach Vetat, 1648 and 49. Was it because it wasn't so many fatalities? Only 100,000 rather than 6 million? No. Because secular remembrances can never live on. 
the only thing that lives on for eternity, the only thing that is as dynamic and alive today as it was a thousand, two thousand, and three thousand years ago. The only thing is Torah Judaism. And it is our secret to eternity. For, as the Rebbe once wrote in a letter, in every time and in every place there were various variables that contributed to Jewish welfare, to our existence, our survival. There were times we had self-determination, times we had national governance, times we had a homeland, times we had political clout, and times we had military might, times we had some of those, and times we had none of the above. There is only one common denominator, only one. It is present in every single era and epoch in every moment of Jewish history. And it is Torah and mitzvahs. Any community in which there wasn't Yiddishkeit, Torah and mitzvahs, it was a matter of time. No, Judaism cannot evolve, as some would have you think, because it evolves into oblivion. It evolves into something entirely unrecognizable. It may still call itself a faith system, but at some point it ceases to be Jewish. And it's no longer Judaism. History has many obvious examples of this. There have always been movements, non-Torah movements that plagued our people. They all disappear. And the present ones will too. It's impossible for anything to always excite imagination. It's impossible for anything to be able to whip up enthusiasm or to tug at heartstrings. It's impossible for something to continually stimulate the mind and create interest unless, unless it's not limited to the vicissitudes of time or to spatial dimensions. And that is precisely the definition of Torah truth. This said Rabbi Avram Galiko, is what Mordechai was thinking of when he penned the Megillah. He didn't write a story. He understood that he was privileged to write the next book or chapter in the Tanakh, in our Jewish Bible. And our Jewish Bible, our Torah Nevi'im and Ketuvim, are eternal. Now, of course, you may ask me, if all the things I just said are true, how is it possible to square that with the words of the Talmud Yerushalmi that says, well, Mashiach will come, that entire chunks, in fact, most of the Nevi'im in Suvim, it says, will be nullified. Ah, the Rebbe says, it doesn't mean they'll be nullified. It means there'll be such a great bright light when Mashiach comes that it will eclipse the light of other beacons. Things that once were able to illuminate our lives will no longer play a tremendous amount of relevance because there'll be greater light. A simple example, the Gemara says, Shraga Batihara, Maya honey, if you have a candle, it may be burning brightly, but at high noon, nobody will notice its light. The only time you notice its light is when the sun sets and darkness descends upon the horizon. And the darker the sky gets, the brighter the candle seems to glow. But the truth is that its radiance was always there. It was just eclipsed. The coming of Mashiach will be such a time of spiritual elevation, joy, awareness, consciousness, that words of Scripture won't be particularly exciting for us anymore. 
because, because we'll know Hashem and everything will be clear to us. But there is one book, one book of Tanakh, whose light is so bright that it will continue to shine even under the full profundity of high noon, so to speak. And that's Megillus Esther. Wow. That's what Mordechai was privileged to pen. That's what he was gifted with. When he wrote these words, he became Hashem's vehicle, the funnel through which Hashem's eternity was delivered to us. And what is so bright? What is so illuminating? What is so radiant about the Megillah? We'll come back to that soon. So now we understand what Mordechai was attempting to do and what, in fact, he accomplished. Moving forward for a careful study of the 21st verse of the ninth chapter. Lekayim, the Megillah says. This was about upholding. This was about creating what you would call a sense of eternity, a lasting sense of meaning. Mordechai, in a sense, was charging us, mandating that we fulfill this. You know, kiyum, broadly speaking, is a word that's used in the vernacular of Torah language to, to fulfill something. Like you are mekayim a mitzvah, you fulfill a mitzvah, but when you fulfill a mitzvah, you're actually charged with upholding and bringing the presence of Hashem into our world. You make our world a, a brighter and a godlier place every time you perform a mitzvah. Mordechai gave us an opportunity now, lekayim alehem, to fulfill, to uphold upon ourselves, that we should make. Now, how do you make it? Well, you can be empowered by Torah, and then, and then you got to make it happen. That we should make eight yom arba asr lechodesh adar. This fourteenth day of chodesh adar, the eight yom chamishim, and the fifteenth day of chodesh adar, of this chodesh of this month, at yom chamisha asr bo, the chol shana v'shana, each and every single year. In other words, annually. This is something that we are going to do on an annual basis. The word shana, which means year in Hebrew, is etymologically related to the word shinoi, which means change. The seasons change every single year. And the way we view time is cyclical. The circle or cycle of a year's seasons essentially mean that you come right around to where you started. For example, the Jewish year for us is supposed to begin in the spring. We were born on Pesach. And our national birth is celebrated annually each year in the spring. Because the lunar calendar is 11 and a half days or so shorter than the solar calendar, every couple of years we need to have an additional month added. I mean, after three years, you're at least 34 days behind, 35 days behind. What are you going to do about that? Well, 
you even things out. And we have a 21-year cycle, and it works. In fact, our calendar is still more precise and accurate than any other calendar that's been put into motion. The Gregorian calendar, for example, had to be overhauled. They filed for a year's end and made a short 11-day year, and they started all over again because the calendar was off kilter. That's why the non-Jewish holiday celebrated in December in some cultures or in some parts of the world are celebrated today in January because, well, because they didn't accept that change. The truth is, though, they had to change it because the calendar was out of whack. Our calendar, without the help of computers, is so perfect, so precise, that we're missing, like, nanoseconds. In, like, 50,000 years or so, we'll be out of whack, but we don't believe <laughs> that the world, as we know it, is going to be continuing. Mashiach is going to come, and time is going to change for the better. At any rate, the point is that the way we see the cycle of time is cyclical. We come right back to where we started. But we're always growing or moving ahead. So whilst it's circular, the proper example is a spiral. You know, like a spiral staircase. You're going around. You're back where you started, at least from the perspective of the orbit, but you moved up. And so year after year, we continue to celebrate the various details of our Torah Judaism annually. There are some mitzvahs we fulfill on a daily basis, like putting on tefillin, reciting the Shema. These are things that have to be done every single day of our lives. There are mitzvahs which we do once a week, like observing the Shabbat. And then there are annual mitzvot. Most of them are related in some way, shape, or form to a holiday, to a festival, to a time of divine grace in which we are empowered to do certain things that resonate afterwards all year long. So every Jewish holiday has its theme. And the theme of Purim, which is unbridled joy that came from a, a devotion, a commitment to Hashem that transcended rhyme and reason, is observed each and every single year on these days of, these days of Purim. And when we do so, we are mikayim, then we fulfill this on an annual basis in a manner that ultimately saturates the entire year. That's what this is about. This is not about history. This is not about, quote, a memorial celebration. This is not about trying to keep something of the past dynamic, relevant, or alive. It's about accessing the miraculous energy that is Purim and bringing it into our lives, downloading it into our operating system on an annual basis. That is the meaning of Purim's enactment. Now, with regard to this business, if you will, of the fulfillment of Purim, lekayim aleihem, the Dina Pashra says, when it says Lakayim Aleihem, this is not a national endeavor, it is a personal endeavor. Truth be told, there are precious few, but some mitzvot which have to be fulfilled by 
an ecclesiastical court by a legal agency representing the nation of Israel. And then there are mitzvahs which are binding upon us as individuals. Such is the mitzvah of Purim. In the words of the Dina, he says, this idea represents a chova, an obligation, hamutelet al kulam, which has been placed, a burden and a privilege, placed on the shoulders of each and every one of us. The Dina Pasha says that in the time of Purim, not everybody celebrated. There were some people who either escaped, somehow had managed to get under the radar. They were hiding out in the countryside. And maybe they didn't feel that proverbial sword of Democles hanging over them. Maybe they didn't feel that Haman was going to get them. And they probably have, might have plotted a way to survive regardless. So maybe they didn't feel as joyous. Maybe they didn't identify with these amazing celebrations that erupted throughout Jewish communities. Well, that's what was. Once Mordechai would finish with his enactment, once this would be injected into the bloodstream of Yiddishkeit, then it would be lekayim alehem, says the Dina Pashra, each and every single one of us is obligated. Each and every single one of us is empowered. Each and every single one of us is expected to participate and to allow the energy of Purim to flow into the world through them and through their observances. The Alshech tells us some phenomenal things about, about this, this uh, business of Mordechai's writing or enactment. It begins, says the Alshech, with the words, Vayichtov Mordechai es hadvarim ha'ela. Mordechai wrote these very words. In order for this to become something that everybody can identify with, Mordechai had to write these words. Why? What, what is it? What's the emphasis in the writing of these words? Alshach says something amazing. He says, you know, today we all know the story. Today we can all study Megillah Sester. And the more we read into it and the more we study it, the more we appreciate and understand the miracles of Hashem. But at the time, most people didn't really understand or realize quite how remarkable or astonishing this all was. They didn't know the details. For example, he says, how many people really understood Haman's power? How many people realized what he had managed to do in just a couple of weeks? Within weeks of becoming the prime minister, he had set into motion a genocide of the Jewish people, the kind of which anti-Semites and haters had dreamed of in their nightmares or I should say our nightmares, and never succeeded. No one ever came closer than Haman. And he did it in lightning speed. And the way he rose, and the way he fell, astounding. How many people really understood the Hashgacha Pratis, the divine design the remarkable providence that follows Mordechai and Esther, how he overhears a story and conveys it to Esther, who happens to say it in his name, 
How many people knew about that? How many people understood that from the, the moment we get introduced to Mordechai, Ish, Yehudi, Hayabish, Ushan, Habira, that Misham, that's where the miracle starts. How many people realized, says the Alshech, how close Haman came to succeeding? Here they will discover the power that this man had. The political will and ability he was able to exert. And how? How everything simply evaporated in moments. How what could have been the greatest evil was transformed into incredible goodness. He says, thirdly, how many people realized what an anti-Semite Achashverosh himself was. Mordechai couldn't even write it overtly in the Megillah, but we studied this Megillah together and we know precisely how hateful a man he was. As the Gemara tells us in Masechet Megillah, the metaphor describing the exchange of Mordechai, a pardon me, of Haman and Achashverosh, where one has a, a, a ditch to dig and one has one to fill. He says, you bring me the earth and I'll use it as landfill. Achashverosh had this tremendous emptiness. He wanted to fill it with anti-Semitism. Haman had this terrible hatred. He wanted to get rid of that which bothered him by destroying the Jewish people. They were actually a mirror image of one another. Both hateful individuals with murderous intent. Who knew? Without the Megillahs being written, who would have understood that? An enormous set of provinces, an enormous empire. How many people really knew the king? Once again, how many people understood or realized what kind of danger we were in? The Alshech wrote, Ato, now that Mordechai had penned this Purim Megillah, this Megillah Esther, Yiru v'yeveshu, now they will see, now they will acknowledge, now they will know, Ki Hashem this is simply miraculous in the hands of Hashem. And had Mordechai not been aware of everything that happened, because you'll remember, Haman flew beneath the radar. Nobody knew. But Mordechai knew. And Mordechai spread the word, broadcast the message. He went out into the city and he cried out. And what happened? Shockingly, Mordechai's Paul Revere moment resonated. He went out there and shook up the Jewish people. They listened. The Jewish people did full return, so to speak. A total rejuvenation. 
they fasted for three days, everybody was in Shushan, and if not for that, they wouldn't have received God's miraculous deliverance. At the end, all of this comes directly from God. They would have, so to speak, been able to do us in Lule Hashem Shahoyolono. Who would know? Says the Al Sheikh. Some people said, ah, we'll be fine. We've got a sister, the queen, the Jewish queen. How could things go wrong? How could they have known that Esther was literally within a centimeter? of being killed. Achashverosh just about eliminated her as he had done to Vashti, except for some heavenly intervention. When Mordechai says, either you pony up and do what's being asked of you, or ato beito and you will be annihilated as well. And it's precisely what would have happened. She fasted. Her maidens fasted. And if not for Hashem's protection, then the bitter cup of poison would have been overwhelming for her as well. Upon her too, with a poor cup of poison, Haman's cup of poison, have been spilled. The fact that the king acquiesced to her requests and did what she wanted, this is all who is Isa. This is all an act of God. And so, now that Mordechai tells us the story, now that we appreciate the saving acts, the miraculous deliverance of Hashem, so now, Mordechai sought now to sow this into the heart, mind, and soul of every single Jew, making it a part of our Yiddishkeit observance a part of our eternity. So that this is mandatory. It's not an elective. Every Jew is obligated. That, that joy, that celebration, that thanksgiving, which naturally expressed itself, and some did, and perhaps some didn't, would now become obligatory. Everybody has to get involved in this. And that's the meaning, says the Alshech of Kayomim Ashenochu Behem Ayhudim, in the manner that the Jewish people had rested originally. When did they rest? They rested on those first days, the 14th and the 15th. And so now it becomes mandatory to celebrate Purim on the 14th and on the 15th. And moving into verse 22. And I just want you to know that we're only going to be uh, we're going to be studying about half of verse 22 because there's really two parts of verse 22. There's, there's the establishing of these days as a festival and then there's the actual observances and methodology and we're not going to get to actual observances and methodology. We're going to focus on the establishment of the days and in fact, the focus on a month as you'll see in a moment. All of this is done done kayomim, as in the days, as in the days. In other words, this is done in the image of kayamim, 
On those very same days, Asher nochu bahem hayehudim, which the Jews had relief from their enemies, me'oyveyem, v'hachoydesh, and the month, Asher nepach lahem, which became transformed for them, miyogoin l'simcha, from grief to joy, u'me'evel l'yom tov, and from mourning to festivities, to a holiday. La'asototam, so that we might make these days, and the rest of the verse says, yimei mishter, days of feasting, and then happiness of joy rejoicing, mishloach manot, and matanot le'evyonim, the gifts of foodstuffs, and generosity. But we're going to focus on that, Be'ezrat Hashem, in a future class. Here, I want to highlight and analyze the first part of verse 22, which is really going to kind of sew up the thesis of what precisely Mordechai was doing when he enacted Purim for posterity. So the first thing that I want to draw your attention to when it says, Kayomim, like the days, is that it should have said, not kayomim, but bayomim, on the days, ashenochu. Why does it say kayomim, like the days? Well, this is very interesting, but the Gemara in Masechet Megillah, right in the beginning, says that the Megillah can be read on the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. Five days in which the Megillah can be read during the course of the month of Adar. The Talmud Yerushalmi goes further and says, Kayomim Asher Nochu. And it says, Vehachodesh Asher The Talmud Yerushalmi says, You can read the Megillah all month. But we'll get to that in a moment. Let's talk about the Kayomim. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Omar. Rabbi Shmuel Bar said, This is Gemara Mesechet Megillah, Dav Beis, the first page. How do we know that you can read the Megillah on all of those days? So his answer is because the scripture says, Kayamim, like the days, Ashenochu Yehudim, Kayamim. It should have said, Yamim. Yamim, the days, 14th and 15th. Instead it says, like the days, Kayamim, Lerabois, to make another two days. So these are two days, and there's another two days. And they are the 11th and the 12th. So in corollary to the, thir- the, the 14th and the 15th, we have Kayamim, like those days, you can read the Megillah on different days, the 11th and the 12th. So the Gemara says, what do you mean? Ve'emar, and maybe it's Teresar Vitalesar, maybe it's the 12th and the 13th, how do you know it's 11 and 12? How do you know that those two days mirror 14 and 15? Maybe 12 and 13 mirror them. The Gemara says, that's a good point you make. However, 13, that's already included. That's a day of observance. It's directly linked to Purim. It's called in our day and age, Tanit Esther. Tomorrow, in the Customs and Conventions, I'm going to be explaining where that name comes from and the remarkable history of Tanatesta in a class that's called A Taste of Hunger. But let's stick to 
today's class. Today we're talking about the idea that this includes the 12th, 11th and 12th, because the 13th is, well, already included. The Gemara says, so maybe you can go past the 15th. And he says, no. It says, lo yavr. Can't go any further. And even the Talmud Yerushalmi that says you can read it the whole month says it means the whole month from the beginning of the month up until the 15th. So we have this idea that's being conveyed to us that there's more than the days of Purim themselves. The days of Purim, 14 and 15, one is Purim, one is Shushan Purim, the history of which we explained in the previous episode, are now augmented, further developed. The joy, if you will, spills over. The possibility of mitzvah observance saturates more than those two days. Kayamim. It turns out there's a total of six days in which, or five days in which the Megillah can be read and possibly, as we'll soon see, the entire beginning of the month. At this point, I want to focus on something which I think is quite noteworthy. We don't say kayomim, like the days in which they were delivered. We say kayomim, asher nochu bohem, like the days in which they rested. I'm just going to remind everybody that if you have any comments or questions, you're welcome to post it right here in the, li- in the chat on YouTube, in case you're watching on Facebook. And uh, wow, shalom from Ukraine. That's uh, remarkable. I'm glad the internet's working. So what I'm about to share with you is, is positively eye-opening. It's, um, it sheds light on the way we, the Jewish people, view both war and victory. You know, in some faith systems, there's a concept I'll call it a notion, because we believe it's wrong-headed. A notion of a holy war. In Hebrew, that would be Milchemet Kodesh. And there's no such thing anywhere in Torah vernacular. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, the word Kedusha, the word holiness, the word milchama, the word war, can never, ever go together. It's no secret that King David desperately yearned to build the first Beit HaMikdash, but God said he couldn't because he was Ish Mohama. He was a man of war. It didn't make him a bad man. He was a very good man. He's the one who establishes the Davidic monarchy and ultimately plants the seeds of the future redemption. All true. Nobody's suggesting that David's warfare was sinful. But it's still not as good as peace. The terminology we do use in Torah is milchemet mitzvah. A mitzvah is a commandment or an instruction. In English, something that's mandated. We have mandated wars. We have wars which are moral. A moral war is a war we must fight. We simply have no choice. Not because 
we want to fight, not because we glorify violence, not because we lionize the idea of warriors. We don't. We do so reluctantly, with heavy hearts. But once we're in the fray, we fight like tigers. Why? Because we're morally mandated to do so. War is not holy. War is hell. War is horrible. It's the worst kind of thing known to humankind. Sometimes, tragically, it's mandated and we have no choice. And so when we celebrate, when we celebrate a victory, when we celebrate divine deliverance from something like war, there's an emphasis that the celebration of Purim is that this that this fulfillment, that this upholding, that this idea that Purim is able to open blessings and bring a pipeline of Purim energy into our life that you and I and every other single member of Am Yisrael around the world is mandated, obligated to celebrate Purim to the best of his or her ability. It's Kayomim Asher Nochu Bohem. These are the days in which we rested not the days in which we locked horns, battled, or warred. Let me share with you the words, the illuminating words of the Monis Halevi, Rabbeinu Shlema Alkabatz, in his commentary. Rabbeinu Shlema Halevi Alkabatz. He says, Gozar alei lekayim aleihem mitzvah zu. He said, Mordechai decreed that they do this mitzvah. It wasn't an option. It was absolutely necessary for each and every one of us. And as we learned in the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Dina Pasha says this, even after the coming of the Messiah, Mashiach speedily in our days, we'll continue to do this. Purim will always be celebrated. Says the Monas Halevi, this is not the joy in which we celebrate the downfall of our enemies, evil and monstrous as they were. After all, there is a clear verse that states, When your enemy falls, don't rejoice. Well, what are we rejoicing? What are we happy about? Elo, rather, the deliverance, the salvation of Am Yisrael. And that is why Mordechai wrote in the Megillah, He could have said, like the days in which they celebrated, because the verse, after all, says, to make these days, it should be like the day when they celebrated in the beginning. As the Al-Sheikh said, they celebrated in the beginning, but not everybody celebrated. They all together, they already had begun the celebration, and now Mordechai enacted it. He made it formal and binding upon each and every single one. Yeah, that's not, that's not the meaning of the days in which they rested that's the days in which they celebrated. So why would the Megillah use the term, it's not about rest, relief, respite. It's about 
celebration. Aha, says the Manas Halevi. We make a memorial celebration, a remembrance on the day of respite, not war. We don't celebrate warfare. We don't celebrate because of vengeance. We don't take joy and glee and pride in wreaking vengeance. We delight in the relief granted to Am Yisrael Me'eveim. This idea is beautifully developed in the writings of the famous Reb Meir Simcha Cohen of Dvinsk. I got this book somewhere. One second. Oh, here it is. In his commentary on Chumash, which is known as the Meshech Chochma. In Exodus 15, Parsha's boy, he talks about the celebration of Pesach. And he says that the celebration of Pesach was originally for just one day. One day. They didn't have chametz for one day. However, afterwards, they were commanded to celebrate Pesach for seven days. Why, he says. What changed? The Meshachachma says, therein lies a kernel of the secret of Torah theology, of Jewish philosophy, of what precisely we celebrate when a day of deliverance Am Yisrael arrives. He says, Kol ha'amin hanimusies. All nations, as a rule, by virtue of their customs or conventions and enactments, yasu yim hanitzochen. They make a victory day, a V-day celebration, May Day celebration. The day when they brought their enemies low. And they turned that day into a celebration day. The Jewish people are different. We do not celebrate the destruction of our enemies. This is not where we find joy as per the scriptural dictate, when you see your enemy fall, Shlomo HaMelech wisely observed, or I should say prophetically observed, in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17, when your enemy falls, do not rejoice. And the Meshachachmas, say in his view, but it's not really the Meshachachma's view. The Meshachachma is articulating the Torah view. In his unique way of articulating this Torah truth, he says, Odom Hamayla, a virtuous person. He doesn't rejoice at somebody else's downfall. 
You know, there's a word in the English language that's borrowed from, from German. It's called Schadenfreude. And Schadenfreude comes from German, which means Freude is freed or happiness. And Schaden or Schaden in German, Schaden means damages. The joy of damages, the joy of injury, the joy of an assault, the joy of loss, obviously for somebody else. People who enjoy seeing an enemy writhe in pain and suffer. It's an English word. It comes from German. It's definitely not Jewish. Schadenfreude is a horrible sentiment. That's not what gives us joy. Why not? Because it's not what God wants. And we try to live our lives as God wants us to live it. And inasmuch as our nature is to say, Ha! Serves him right. Just desserts. This kind of joy is not appreciated by God. It's bad in God's eyes. And therefore, if it's bad in God's eyes, we have to detest it as well. And that's why he says in the festival of Pesach, we don't say God who smote the Egyptians. We don't rejoice at the destruction of our taskmasters, our captors, our abusers, although we were horribly treated. Beatings, murder, you name it, they did it. Everything but rape, with one notable exception. Key. Rather, we celebrate Ki Hashem as B'nai Min Mitzrayim. We celebrate God taking the Jewish people out of Egypt. Avala Mapolis Ho'evim, on the falling of our enemies. Ain Chag. There's no festival. There's no Yom Tafli Yisrael. And he says that's why the miracle of Hanukkah is not about the battle. We mention the battle in our prayers, but the focus of Hanukkah is the kindling of the menorah and the miracle of the eternity of our Torah light. And then he goes on to say, They did not make a joy, a festivity, a holiday on the day of Haman's hanging. Or the day that they killed their enemies, scores of neo-Nazi Amalekites who were wiped out Annihilated, thankfully, on the 13th and in Shushan on the 14th of Adar? No. This is not the way the nation of Israel celebrates. We rejoice. We celebrate on the day we found respite, on the day we were delivered from our enemies, not the suffering downfall or annihilation of our enemies. So what was Mordechai worried about? He was worried about us forgetting this. That's what he wanted us to remember. Our deliverance, not our enemies. Hasimcha al The joy is for the respite, for the tranquility, for the peace, for the salvation we were miraculously granted. And that's what he wrote in these books. And that's the moral mandate of L'kayim Aleim. And that's the emphasis, Kayomim Asher And that's why 
says, Mardukhai wasn't worried, although we knew these books would be seen by all kinds of people. He wasn't worried. It wouldn't raise the ire or create jealousy from our neighbors because we didn't focus on the enemy. We focused on our deliverance. We focused on us being saved by Hashem. And so now that we understand that this celebration is it's the days in which we rested. We can move on to the next word, perhaps the most perplexing of all, and the month that was turned inside out. The Alshech says, Kayomim, don't say the main miracle was on Pesach. After all, that's when they fasted for three days. That's when Haman was hung. That's when the letter, the bad letter, the edict of Achashverosh was nullified, or the month of Sivan when a new letter, a new edict was written. He says, no, no, no. Why? Because even after the miracles of Pesach, and even after the new letter of Sivan, we still quaked in our boots. We were still slated for genocide and annihilation in the month of Adar until those days came. And so we have to celebrate on the days we actually had respite. Not on the days when things started to get better, when they actually got better. And the month which was transformed, he says, this comes to exclude the month of Nisan. The first month of Nisan, although Haman was hung, was not yet respite. It wasn't until a whole year later, when we got to the month of Adar, that we were able to celebrate. And al Shekh wants to say, this is the reason that it says, is explaining why it's that the days of respite were not upon the hanging of Haman or the elimination of his children. But rather, only the battle was completed and we actually no longer lived under the shadow of fear. The Vilna Gorn in his commentary emphasizes that this chaydesh ashenepach lehem, he says, it means kasher yeshvim b'tzara, that even after the original deliverance, they were still, so to speak, between a rock and a hard spot. Shesavrim, they still said, Haman is gone, his henchmen may be gone, but be'aisei chaydesh yovei tzara. They said, Adar is coming. And Adar is the month that spells doom and gloom for us. Adar is the month when we'll be finished. And Kivin Shigia Isaiah and that month came. Now they were worried. They said, now we're in trouble. Therefore it says, because Kol the whole month was transformed from agony, from pain into happiness and joy. The Vilnagorn says, this is the meaning of what we read in the Gemara, Mesechat Tanit, on page 29, at the end of the first side, Keshem shenichnas av, 
just like when the month of Av arrives, we have to minimize our joy. So too, when Adar arrives, it's time to ramp up the joy. The Vilna Gaon says, what's going on over here? What's the connection between one and the other? But he says, according to what I wrote, it makes sense. Just like Av comes, we minimize in joy, because the whole month was a terrible month of mourning. So too, this month was a month of Simcha. Now, I have to tell you, I don't really know what that means. I don't really see the corollary between the month of Av and the month of Adar. Why do we have to celebrate the whole month long? What even does that mean? It's interesting to note that in a Sicha, that the, the Rebbe delivered. And Shabbos Parshas Mishpatim was Parshat Shkalim. The year is 1988. It's the beginning of Adar. And the Rebbe says that every month, this is the Shabbat before Rosh Chodesh, every month has its central theme. And he says the central theme, central theme of Chodesh Adar is HaChodesh Asher Nepachlam, the whole month that's transformed. And the Rebbe says it's not just any joy. The joy of Simcha, Simcha of Purim is so unique because it's Nepach, because we went miyogon Simcha from mourning, from, from grief into joy. So that's where the joy is much more pronounced. Right. I don't know if you can still see me, but something just went wrong, wonky on the screen here. Um, my friends, if you can see and or hear me, can you please text me? As the screen just went white. Are you watching? Some of you have my, uh, my number? Michal David says we can see you. And you can hear me? Okay. Well, in that case, we shall carry on. So the Rebbe says that the Simcha of Purim is actually Adal and it's a, a transformative joy. The whole idea of the Simcha of Purim is that it was transformed from one extreme to the other. And he says just like it's there about Purim, so too with regard to the whole month. And the Rebbe points out in a footnote, this is an edited talk, that this affects the halacha. Because the Talmud Yerushalmi, which I mentioned earlier, tells us that we can read the Megillah all month long. And, by the way, this is actually quoted in the Shulchan Aruch. In Simen Tov Reish Peites, 689 at the very end, the Machaber Rabbeinu Yosef Karol writes, Yesh Omrim, there are those who say, that one can read the Megillah even from the beginning of the month. And the Ramah adds, And this indeed is the case. And the Mishnah Brura notes in Sifkatan Chof Aleph, in his note 21, So the way the Rebbe sees this, there's this idea, and the idea even filters through into Halacha, which makes it, uh, as we say, extremely real. Very, very actual. 
I don't know what happened to the screen, but we're back. Excellent. See if Facebook is going. Yeah. And it has all that. Fantastic. Okay. So, so this still doesn't still doesn't make sense. Okay, so Purim was a transformative thing, and because Purim happened in the month, the whole month is saturated with that joy. Why? What, what, what does that mean? Seriously, what, what does that mean? We celebrate Pesach in Pesach. The fact that we don't say certain prayers from the beginning of the month of, of Nisan is not because Nisan is transformed into the month of Pesach, but rather because in the first days of Nisan, we had special offerings that were brought by the various princes of each tribe, bringing the Shekhinah into our life. And then we have a day afterwards, which Tzemach Tzedek said is like an Iser Chag, and an add-on, which is the 13th day, ends up being Tzemach Tzedek's Yehim Heilula. And then is Erev Pesach, and then Pesach, and then it says, because Yotzah Chedesh, B'Kedusha, Reva Chedesh, B'Kedusha, most of the month has gone by with holiness, so that saturates the end of the month. But we don't speak about the month of Nisan that way. We certainly don't speak about the month of Kislev that way. Why is it that the month becomes a happy month? I mean, it's clear that's the case. We don't really have an explanation for this. So here's the good news. The Rebbe asked this very question and he gave us an incredible answer. But in order to appreciate and understand this answer, I want to take a look inside to read the Gemara that the Vilna Goyen just quoted before. The Vilna Goyen links this idea of the whole month that is filled with joy. He says to understand this, you have to look in the Gemara. The Gemara in Taina says the following, Amr Rebbe Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda Brey, the son of Rabbi Shmuel Bashila, said in his name, sorry, in Bishmei de Rav, in the name of Rav, Kishem, just like Shemishanichnas of Mimat in Besimcha, just like when the month of Av comes, we minimize in our joy because of the bad things that happened in that month. Kach, Mishnichnas Adar, Marbim Besimcha. So too, when Adar comes, we have to increase in our joy because of the things that happened in this month. Rashi says, nisim It was days of miracles, Purim and Pesach. <laughs> what is Rashi saying, Purim and Pesach? That's why Mishinichnas Adar? How does that work? We don't have a, jo- a, a halacha of Nisan, Mishinichnas Nisan. The Gemara, by the way, goes further. Amar of Papa, of Papa taught. That Hilkach, Bar Yisrael, the Isleid, Nina Bahadinochri, if there is a Jew who has a court situation with a Gentile, he says, Lishtamit Minei, find a way to get out of it in the month of Av. Deria Mazole, because we got bad luck. Bad luck dump. Belimtse Nafshe, and you do your best to try to work things out. Ba'adar, Debore Mazole, because our Mazel is very strong. Now, there's a long discussion about what this means. The Ritva asks the question, there's no mazel Yisrael. And the Ritva says, maybe there's no mazel generally, but these months do have mazel. And then the Ritva says, maybe it's not about mazel in the literal, it's not luck, it's not fortune. It means this is a time when Hashem leveled gezerot against the Jewish people, or a time when Hashem brought about good things for the Jewish people. 
So therefore, there's a, it's, it's propitious, there's a propensity in these days for good things to happen. So what does that have to do with this, this study in contrast between Adar and Av? What's going on here? So here, we're going to conclude with this explanation, this incredible explanation. This is a, a Sikha. An edited talk from the Rebbe, which is found in the 16th volume of the Kutusichas. Uh, I'm on page 346. It's a sicha on Tetzava and Zion Oder. The, the, the primary thrust of, of the sicha is not what we're focusing on now. But this is um, a part of it. So the Rebbe says, they've asked this question. What does it mean, HaChodesh HaShem Nebuchadnezzar? That the Gantzer Chodesh is Nebuchadnezzar in the Simcha. Um, mitzad zem zog the Yerushalmi. And that's what the Yerushalmi says. If somebody cannot wait to read the Megillah on the 14th, suppose he has to board a ship. Not like today's days. You know, once upon a time. And he doesn't have a Megillah with him. So then we say, from the beginning of Adar. And then Amos says, we just read that from the Shogun Aruch a moment ago. The miracle was on the 13th. We rested on the 14th. What do you mean the month? What makes the month? Can you imagine lighting the menorah on Rosh Chodesh Kislev because, you know, the month of Kislev has arrived? What does that mean? So the Rebbe zeroes in on the Gemara and he says the Gemara's words are Kishem, just as. Kishem means just like. We say in Av, we remember it, Kach, so too. The Rebbe says, what is there this connection. What's the, what's the, the mirror image? Kishem, just as we minimize and joy in Av, so too we must add and joy in Adar. It's two separate halachas. There's a halacha that we minimize joy in one month, and there's a halacha that we have to maximize joy in another month. What's Kishem, just as, in the image of, as a reflection? What's the point? So the Rebbe suggests something incredible that the month of Av is different from all other months because, firstly, Chuchbelu Boi Tsaris. The Gemara Mesech Rashan on page 18 tells us that the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed on the t- ninth of Av and the second Beit HaMikdash was also destroyed on the very same day. But then the Gemara goes further. And the Gemara says, Megagal and Zchut that meritorious things are arranged so that they work out to come in a meritorious time. And things which take a toll, are taxing, go on days in which we are found wanting. So the Rebbe says, we know that there is a deep history here. It's a Yom Chayav because at the very beginning of our people we made a devastating mistake. Hashem wanted us to go to Eretz Yisrael and we sent Meraglim. And the Meraglim scouted us out as the Gemara tells us in great detail in Masechet Ta'anit. On Tisha B'av, the Jewish people said, No, we refuse to go into the land of Israel. And the Gemara says, Omer Lehem HaKadosh Baruch Hu God said, Atem Bechisem Bechishalchinam, you have wept. And rebelled against me for no reason. I will establish this as a day of mourning forever. In other words, there's a deep history. 
There's a deep history to the month of Av. It is a month of foreboding for the Jewish people. We, the Jewish people, refused to go into the land of Israel. We wept and cried, quetched and complained, accused God of hating us. Bad stuff. From that time on, where the month was predispositioned to be a time in which, if and when we'd be found wanting, this would be the month we'd have to pay the bills. The month of Nisan, however, of Adar, however, is an amazing month for the Jewish people. Averbe says that's the idea of Kishem. It's about deep history. What happens in the month of Adar? There's an amazing Gemara. It's in Meseches Gila on page 13. The Gemara says that when Haman threw lots, so Haman came to the month of Adar, and the Gemara says in Dafyud Gimel, the Gemara says when Haman saw that this day was the day, the month, pardon me, in which Mo, uh, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu passed, so it says, Somach Simcha G'dayla. He became filled with a sense of joy. Why? Because he said, Aha! This is the month I'm going to be able to get them. Why is that? Simply stated, because this is the month in which they lost their great leader. This is the month in which Moshe Rabbeinu was taken from them. Just give me a second to find it inside. He pilpur hu He threw the lottery. We learned kivan shenafal pur bechodesh adar. Once it fell in the month of adar, so machsim chagdayla haman was delighted. Omar he said nafali pur biyerech shemeis beimaisha. This is the month where they lost Moses. But he didn't know. Shebeshiva baadar meis that Moshe Rabbeinu was taken from us on the seventh of adar. However, ubeshiva baadar neilad. On the seventh of the Adar, he was also born. So there's this emphasis. Rashi tells us precisely how we know it was on the seventh day of Adar. But the Rebbe says the words of the Gemara are Bechodesh, the month. The Rebbe develops this remarkable explanation. He says, the thing about the month of Adar, it's the month of Moshe Rabbeinu's birth. Without Moshe Rabbeinu, there's no Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. He is the one God chooses as the Goel, as the Redeemer. In a certain sense, it all begins in the month of Adar, when Moshe Rabbeinu is born. Moshe is Moshe and She Yisrael. In other words, Number one, it's a day of tremendous merit. Zion Adar. Moshe Rabbeinu was born, and there are many miracles that unfold for the Jewish people. Those are the miracles of Purim. And the Rebbe goes on to suggest that ultimately, if you read the words of the Gemara properly, you will understand that the reason that the miracle of Purim was able to unfold in the manner that it did was because it was the month in which Moshe Rabbeinu was born, because it had a deep history of mazaldike, wonderful, elevating, liberating energy. The Rebbe says that's the meaning of kishem. Just as Av has a deep history of negativity, 
Adar had a deep history of positivity. So it's This isn't merely the days in which we rejoice. Ultimately, the miracle of Purim saturates the month. And that's why Rashi says in his commentary, the days of Purim and Pesach. There's no Pesach without a Moshe Rabbeinu. This is all one continuation. And this Mordechai encoded into the Megillah explaining to the Jewish people that the story and the miracles of Purim are actually rooted in the very beginning of our history. And it is the kind of joy that represents an utter and absolute transformation. And that is why Mordechai in the Megillah writes the words, not only Kayomim Ashanochu, but adds the words, Vahachoidesh Ashanetach Lahem Miyogim Simcha in the Eveliyotav. And here there's an emphasis on transformation. There's a lot to say about the link of Purim, Adar, into Pesach in the month of Nisan, but we're all out of time. So we're going to pull the curtain down and close the class here at this point. And with Hashem's help, we will continue our study of the Megillah in the future. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you'll continue to join me live or on replay, whatever works, as we study Hashem's Torah, open ourselves to its uplifting messages, and allow ourselves to be transformed, because that's really what this is all about. If we can be transformed, then that can be infectious in a positive way. And hopefully, the time in which we find ourselves will be able to stimulate and bring forth good things for all of Am Yisrael. In this great time of need and challenge, we should be zoicha, we should merit a Hashem, that Purim this year should be over the top, Adalayada, with a simcha, a joy that is felt by Jewish people wherever they may be, Hopefully, this will finally be the time in which we experience the full transformation with the coming of Mashiach. Thank you so much for joining. Have a wonderful day. A happy Purim to each and every one of you. Please be, share, be sure to hear the Megillah, not on YouTube or Zoom. That doesn't work. To hear the Megillah in person, to give Mishloch Manot the gifts of foodstuff, to be sure to express your generosity in real time. Unfortunately, there are so many in need. And of course, to come together and celebrate with the Su'udat Purim. And hopefully, as I said, we will be celebrating Purim together with Mashiach. Bimheira will be Amenu. Amen. Thank you again. Have a beautiful day.